0: Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast, presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. And listen, I've finally found somebody that might have as much energy as I do on the stage. Yeah, I know, we're dealing with guys like Kevin Dillon and and and, and heavy-duty players, but this guy, is uh, he's got some energy.
1: I'd like to introduce you to uh, Jeffrey DeMolin. Jeffrey, how are you, sir? Very well, Eric. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, it was great to see Kevin at your last conference with wheeling a samurai sword. I don't think that's ever happened for me, but I'll have to change that in the future.
0: Well, at least he didn't cut himself this year. So we're good. <laughs> so let's start out with, because you just have a ton to offer, but one I think is most important is is really just setting up the background and in, in, uh, more specifically uh, your company, GTD Scientific Incorporated, which they can they can find online, jtdscientific.com. But but your your science of violence is definitely going to
1: get a lot of people's
0: attention, that's for sure.
1: Well, thank you, Eric, and, and I appreciate that. Um, and just quick correction, not jtdscientific.com. It's jtdscientific.com. Just wanted to, to to correct that. But I agree in the sound. It's important that they go to the right website. Agreed. Yeah, who knows what lies at JTD Scientific, but anyways, um, I think the secret for us, or not necessarily the secret, the usefulness or the utility of what we can bring is a combination of engineering and understanding of the body or the life sciences aspect to it. So just a quick background, um, I have two degrees in kinesiology, which by definition means the study of human movement, but really what it gives you is an understanding of the human body in health and in injury. And then I also have two degrees in engineering, which allows me to approach those human injuries from an engineering perspective, meaning what's the location, magnitude, and direction of the force that caused that injury. And you can apply this anywhere from, um, you know, proned arrests to kneeling on the chest to shooting reconstructions, et cetera. And if you can understand those three things, location, direction, and magnitude of force that caused the injury, you typically have a much greater understanding of, of what occurred in order to cause that injury. So in other words, the events leading up to it, which is, of course, really, really important in reconstructions
0: you know, the whole industry of reconstruction is always interesting in law enforcement because we're especially used to it in accident reconstruction. We're used to it in crime scene reconstruction, but, but tell me a little bit about what you do and what your company does specifically related to the investigation or the reconstruction of use of force
1: incidents. Mm. Great question. Um, and of course, what's fresh in my mind right now is how we apply body cam footage or, or any video footage for that matter to, to reconstructions. But before I do that, I just wanna talk just briefly about our process because a few years ago, we published it in various magazine formats. Uh, I think TLABC, which is the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia has an article on that process. We've also now published it in scientific literature in the International Journal of Forensic Engineering. And you can download both of those articles from our website. If you go to our press or scientific literature section of our website, you can download those. And I believe that not only this combination of life sciences and engineering, but also that process lends itself very well to how we would reconstruct something and how we would approach it. And we typically always start with the injury. So many times, like I can't tell you how many times, Eric, throughout this 15 years or what have you that I've been doing this, where there's so much valuable information in the injury itself, like a bone is broken or there's a laceration or even minor injuries that sometimes even get forgotten by medical professionals. And it's not because they're sloppy or that they haven't done their job. It's because there's much greater more serious or way more severe injuries that they're dealing with at the time and so sometimes those minor injuries that are telling you a lot about what happened don't always get revealed for the value that they bring to a reconstruction so we like to start from that injury describe everything that's going on biomechanically and have that really drive the process through our analysis testing whatever gaps of information that we may need to collect data for to fill those gaps in information. But before we derive any conclusions, another critical part of that whole process is a feedback loop. So during our discussion, when we've done our analysis, we've done our testing, during the discussion, we're kind of talking through uh, what we've done. And before we draw any conclusions, we now look at every piece of either testing results or anything we may want to rely on and consider its consistency with independent sources of information like case materials or independent scientific literature um, or any biomechanical information on any given specific injury that we've come across during our investigation. And often it's so easy to, and I'm sure you've you've experienced this before, maybe not personally, but people around you, so easy to fall in love with a theory or a piece of evidence um, that happens to be sexy for you or or what have you, and that can all get destroyed by a horrible fact. and And it's important not to ignore those horrible, ugly facts. And once you get there, and if everything is consistent with independent sources of information, then you can start then and only then can you start making conclusions about a, 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 an investigation. And so that process, I think really, although that's so high level and maybe didn't give your audience anything, but I do believe that's the starting point. If you can start from there and follow that process, the rest will follow.
0: No, I think you talk about you know a great point of investigator bias, and that applies in many different applications. and, and, and so in facts outweigh theories and try to keep people to focus on facts instead of theories is always a difficult part of
1: of uh, investigation. Correct. And uh, but to boil that down in a little bit more detail, you had asked me, you know, you know what we do and, and how we address or what can we address? Typically, what I like to do is, is when injuries, what I like to say, the phrase that I use is, when injuries happen and fingers are pointed, we find out what really happened. And and that can be anywhere from, like I say, uh, a, a humorous break during an arrest or uh, a shooting incident or a head injury. It really does apply to all of those situations. And now because video is the most prolific form of evidence we have to deal with, we're now discovering ways to derive biomechanics from video. And I I think it was about two or three of your lectures at your last conference, Eric, stated, oh, what do we get from video? We get time, uh, we get distance. And with time and distance, we get velocity. and, And that's where it stopped. And so I'd like to think that we're offering new dimensions on video evidence, such as, for example, shape recognition. We, we, I think I presented it at your conference where we use machine vision to recognize a shape of a person and derive what they may uh, be doing with their hands at the time the officer um, yelled uh, gun, 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 and uh, the event kind of unfolded rapidly after that. Uh, other things is using three-dimensional biomechanical models that can give us all this useful information about injuries, but then overlaying those. like Because those biomechanical models have essentially cameras, the camera view, you can place that camera at the exact same location as the camera in, uh, let's say, a body-worn uh, camera incident or a CCTV or a dash cam. You can place them in the same location And that way you can overlay your biomechanical model with what's happening in the video. And therefore now we're deriving a bunch of force and injury information from that 2D video that was once limited to just time and distance. So it's really quite remarkable. And and then another method, just real quickly, um, that is probably more common to your audiences is photogrammetry or inverse photogrammetry, where by understanding where the body camera is in three-dimensional space, you can now start to make inferences as to the officer's torso orientation, body position within that space, which sometimes can be a critical factor.
0: You know, before I could even get down more into this application, someone's gotta ask you the very direct question is, how do you get here in your life? Like, like how did, you, um, how did you get to this point? And where did your love for this start because there's got to be a great story out there that would to get you through two degrees in both both the you know kin- kinesiology and and engineering kinesthetics it's got to be a great story
1: you know I'm flattered that you'd even ask that question but uh it really started with my interest in firefighting to believe it or not because I I I kind of I was a first responder or I should say um I was a um Emergency medical technician, sorry. So I was learning about injuries. And then as a firefighter, I would learn things like pump pressures uh, based on the, the hose height that would be required to uh, deliver a certain amount of volume of water. And and there's all these calculations and and heat transfer, for example. And 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 so there was these engineering concepts and there is this understanding. Of the human body in in health and, and injury that I just found fascinating, and it turns out, long story short, um, I couldn't do that position anymore. I was actually on the pre-employment list in Edmonton, and I don't know whether or not that's a good or bad thing, be, because I, I don't know if you're familiar with that region, but uh, it, it's it's one of the uh, less desirable places in my opinion to go in Canada, but. Um, uh, nonetheless, I was on the pre-employment list there, and it turns out during that waiting period, uh, something happened to my health that I could no longer uh, go and do that. and And I was advised by my physician at the time that I really needed to kind of move on. But that love for this combination of applying numbers to the human body became was was core, and so I ended up doing four degrees in it. And, uh, and never looked back. And by about the third year of my PhD, I started getting phone calls. People realized what I was up to. And I, of course, found myself on the deadliest warrior television show from Viacom Networks, which really, I got to say, changed my life overnight. And And everyone was telling me, don't do it. It's going to ruin your career. And I did the exact opposite. And so the timing hey, okay. you know we're going to jump into that though okay cool
0: i hope so i hope so that's a great hey, story, too listen because anybody that has googled you by now <laughs> has <laughs> been the deadliest warrior and i i watched that show obviously because i'm a little touched as it is so how the hell did you get into that and and tell me about your your that had to
1: be a, an unbelievable experience well let's do it um i was Still in my PhD thesis, and I was literally in a cadaver lab when the phone call came in, and the chair of the department said, "You might want to talk to this person because he has uh, some military training, and he was work, and I was working on uh, blast mitigation, understanding how brain injuries occurred uh, for the." when exposed to IEDs and other forms of of explosive devices for the US Marines at the time. So he thought it'd be a very good fit. And I got on the television, so they, they came down, got me out of the cadaver lab, and I went up to my supervisor's office and they're like, yeah, this guy's name's Tim Procopies from Hollywood, can you answer a few questions? And I'm like, sure. So I got on the phone and Tim Basically, I was on the phone for about 15 minutes. I, I think I said about three words, but the gist of it was, go film yourself, introduce yourself, show us some of the projects you're working on, and oh, by the way, can you do a quick breakdown of a fight between a Spartan and a ninja? <laughs> and so I got warm fuzzies inside, it, and I'm like, this is something I could get behind. It. I hung up the, the phone, and I immediately grabbed my buddy. And I said, we've got some filming to do. And uh, and I gave him the introduction, and uh, we, we outlined the, the, the battle and the tools of, of the Spartan and the ninja, and I sent that footage in. And I kid you not, the story I received was they had gone through about 1,500 people, and when that footage came in, there was about three people sitting behind the computer, and they all pointed at the computer saying, this is our guy. And so the stars aligned for me that day, and I just can't be – more grateful because it literally did change my life overnight but that is the true story
0: but I mean I I don't know how you came up with some of the things that you used to do on that show I mean like you know what kind of what kind of group of guys did you put around the room to figure out the topic so that you were going to
1: analyze in that in that show good question and often most people think it was all up to me and you know, we did have a say in a lot of it. I'm not gonna lie about that, but there are producers and there's directors and there's ads that are all working to produce this very entertaining show. And so all the decisions around the matchups, about the tests, etc. 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 were primarily performed by them or decided by them, but they would always keep us in the loop and and they'd say, Hey, does this make sense? Or how would you approach a test for this weapon? And what it really came down to, to, which I found extremely, extraordinarily interesting, because engineering is very linear, but Hollywood is very abstract, even though it operates very similarly to a paramilitary organization, um, in the sense there's, it's very structured and, uh, and, and hierarchical, the creative process with those very brilliant, uh, creative people was very interesting to me, in the sense that, um, uh, where was I going with this? Uh, the um the uh oh yeah yeah the, the tests and, and they would say you know uh what what could you do for this weapon and and whatever what's gang is what's worse this knife or this knife or uh, exactly but but the cool thing was is we always chose weapons that were slicey i watched the show you did <laughs> you did thank you for that by the way um and we would always we'd always choose tests that would highlight the strengths of the weapons. So it was a bit of an apples versus oranges kind of comparison, but what that led to is very interesting debate between the experts. Because let's say, for example, you had two very different weapons and you, and the test unfortunately sometimes could decide, you know, or be would favor the capability of one weapon over the other, that's not very interesting. But if you design tests that would highlight the strengths of the weapons, Now you've got an interesting story on your hand, and that's why I think it was popular and just led to so much debate. And uh, you know, uh, honestly, somebody sent me a video, I can't remember what city it was out of, maybe it was Orange County, but they sent me a video of the football field at the university. And it was literally, there was probably a thousand people on the field, half of them on one side of the field, half of them on the other, and they had this giant blow-up uh, screen that they were airing the show. And of course, one side of the field was for one warrior and the other side of the field was for the other. And I couldn't believe the enthusiasm of that video, but it, w- it was very cool and, and so much fun to work on. I'm just very, very grateful.
0: Yeah, that's when you started to learn about Americans, huh?
1: <laughs> you know, I love Americans. <laughs> I, I really do. Uh, this country has been... And when I say this country, I'm actually uh, in the U.S. right now I'm in St. Louis, but uh, has been very, very good to me. So I appreciate it. Yes. So let me ask
0: you a question: Which came first, the uh, the the chicken or the egg? Did the the science of violence come before the deadliest warrior? The deadliest warrior come before the
1: science of violence? Great question, Eric. And I'd have to say the science of violence. Came before deadliest war, and the reason was, is because I could converse on these topics in a way that was useful for people, and so it's that it's that all that education, that combination of the engineering and the life sciences, um, that became the interest, and so really it was building that skill set first, but the timing was what was magical because I was just finishing up my PhD, and the timing couldn't have been better. Um, and, uh, and we were off to the races. And of course, once the show hit, then the transition from school to the real world just became even more easier. So it was, uh, it was very, very fortunate.
0: So what are your core classes? Is that science of violence? you want to tell the listeners and about what that contains and because they could actually
1: see that training and take that training through your website? Correct. Yes. One of them that we have is the introduction to biomechanics. So in that course, what you'll get is a basic introduction of the three laws, three fundamental laws of physics, which is Newton's three laws, which basically dictates motion of any object here on Earth. And of course, any use of force incident has a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving objects. Some of them get injured. And so we can use those equations in very unique ways to derive powerful information to help explain those events in ways that not only are understandable for people but also um, are credible for the courts. So you'll you'll get that and you'll see how those those three laws apply to a very specific shooting reconstruction incident. Uh, and by the way, that methodology had not been seen by the Ninth Circuit when we presented it, but it was accepted as uh, as reliable and admissible. so super proud of that. And so that's kind of the introduction. And then we also have a fundamentals where we build out even more concepts of physics, but we immediately show you how they're applicable to use of force investigations. And then we go through more than just one case study. We go through, I think, about five or six case studies, and that one includes the introduction. So if you're thinking about taking the introduction, I I would actually urge you to take the fundamentals because it includes it anyways. Um, And and that's where we're at right now. We're working on some deep dives. And of course, we're now working on our new presentation, which is biomechanics from video.
0: Okay. I think you started touching upon that, but you want to, and that's just what you got. You actually taught that today. So do you want to jump in a little bit more and just give an overview? Because body-worn cameras are so Involved in in our everyday world, and it's probably even all video, right? Not just body worn camera, ring cameras, and CCTVs, but how, how does that uh, how does that get involved in the bio biomechanical application?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, where do I start? Um, I, I think the important thing there is to understand that it's very easy to make mistakes with video but there are two take homes that if you follow them i think anyone can take measurements with video or almost everyone and that is to make sure that the container and the codec are actually from the source camera number one and then number two is make sure that video you track its chain of custody with a hash number. And the hash number is just, it's, uh, it's an algorithm that goes in and looks at all those ones and zeros, identifies a pattern and gives it like a 15 numbers and letters string, if you will, identifier. So it's like a, 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 f- a fingerprint for a digital file is, is how you can think about it. And if I receive a file from somebody that I can verify the container and codec and it's gonna hash attached to it, I'm pretty confident that person knows what they're doing. Um, Sometimes we get something uh, in VLC, for example, and I'm not not knocking VLC player, but it tells me that the person hasn't paid attention to those details and we might wanna go back and double check that. But I think once you can verify that the container and codec are from that original camera, and you do have a chain of custody where the hash hasn't changed, now you can start to look at, at things like interrogating that file with something like either input, not input, it's now Axon Investigate, sorry, and uh, or AMP 5, yeah. where you can interrogate that file and then look at what you're actually seeing. So for example, what's the frame number? Is it an I-frame, P-frame, B-frame? I'm not gonna get into what those actually are, but it's interesting to know that out of a group of pictures of say 30 or 60 frames long, you may only have one iframe. And the iframe contains most of the information that the camera saw during uh, that time frame. But if you've got a camera that's collecting at 30 frames per second, you're now talking a second or maybe two seconds of information that's relying off one image. And it's doing that by compression, it's doing that by looking at static information within that image, predicting information, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But once you do interrogate it and you can export that information, uh, making any measurements, the best measurements to do are around the iframes if you can, there's not a lot of them. That'd be number one. Number two is also have a look at the duration of each frame. Sometimes they can change. And uh, we just, like the example that we use in this new course was an actual file. And the frame duration changed from, I think the highest was about 34 milliseconds per frame down to, I believe, 31 milliseconds per frame. And it jumped all around. And now that may not matter over two to three frames if that's your region of interest. But if your region of interest is 50 to 100 frames, that all starts to add up and all of a sudden your measurements may start out very accurate, but then the error just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows with your, with those measurements. So being able to see that is really, really important. Um, And that's kind of the basic video stuff in a nutshell, to be honest, Eric. And, um, but the applications is this super interesting part, in my opinion. And what we cover in this new course is three different areas and we can delve into How much or how little as you want. But one is shape recognition based on machine vision techniques. The second one is understanding where that camera is in space and deriving body position and location from inverse photogrammetry. We've actually got a paper on that um, that we published last year and actually published the machine vision one as well. We're trying in a magazine format, just not in, uh, in scientific format yet. And then the last one is deriving force from video. And that's where we overlay these three-dimensional biomechanical models on the 2D video. And if we can match the motion, then there's at least an argument that what we're seeing from the three-dimensional biomechanical model is valid.
0: One of the things that we see oftentimes, and I wanna get your take on it from the aspect of Doing expert witness work, um, not as a cop, as a science, and looking at it from a, a, a science aspect. One of the challenges that we get often here in the States with our judges is that they, every time you talk about science when it comes with violence, there's some pushback, right? They they, they, they they, use it as a, well, you're just trying to confuse everybody. It's not really part of the investigation what is your experience, Ben, as you go to try to explain this in the courtroom? Um, is it different when you're explaining it in a, uh, an automobile accident or a, or a something other than a deadly force shooting? And then is it different if you have a police officer involved in
1: it? Yes. And that is, there's two major hurdles. One is to allow our typical client to understand how we can help them. And then number two, communicating what we've actually done to the layout. Those are our two biggest hurdles. And what we've started to do, and we were much worse at it, I can tell you, about 10 years ago. But more recently, what I'm finding is if you steer away from the technical jargon, and you stay very, very visual, then it can be done. If you limit the number of concepts you're trying to communicate, and I find three is the magic number. If you can boil down your argument to three main points that are incredibly visual, and then you use lay terms to explain each, you've won. So explain what you mean by
0: very visual.
1: <laughs> um, okay, so the machine vision example. Let's just use that as an example. Um Actually, I wonder if I could share my screen and just show you. That'd probably be difficult. We can try. Would it be? Would it be Yeah. Why not? uh i don't well let me explain it uh we can uh, uh, and i i apologize for springing that on you but uh, basically that's okay there there was a moment where we the case that we used the machine vision there was a moment in that video about 10 frames where the body-worn camera was not moving and neither was the suspect and that just so happened to be right before the shooting occurred, and right during when one of the officers yelled, gun, gun, gun. But in those three frames, what you can basically see is an outline. And we took text from a statement of an officer and this outline, and we're like, what are we going to do here? Because we can't get inside the officer's head. That's a behavioral science job, not a biomechanical firm's job. And so we started to just draw... What could have possibly happened? And we had shapes of a person uh, with a gun kind of close to their chest, about halfway out, and then maybe outstretched like this, uh, holding a cell phone. And we noticed right away that there was a ton of information in the elbows. When it was kind of close to the chest, the elbows were low on the torso and they're quite wide. And as you punch those hands out, the elbows start to rise with respect to the torso and they become more narrower until when you're fully punched out, they're almost at the level of the shoulder. And we're like, there's gotta be ways to deal with this, to do like a shape recognition. We started looking into that and we found that there are many algorithms for machines that will use a technique like this for shape recognition to identify objects. So they'll have reference shapes within their database and then with their camera, they're running algorithms around the high contrast regions of whatever objects they're looking at. And if there's a match, then they kind of just make a, a decision that that is the same object. And we did something very, very similar. But of course we had to test whether this was a valid uh, method for humans rather than just objects um, and whether it was feasible with the amount of data that we actually had from that file. So we actually had to test the method completely separate. So we asked Axon to send us a couple cameras. We set them up and we had one person stand there in almost pitch black conditions, about the same distance from the camera as was this case that we were working on. And in the initial image, you couldn't tell that it was even a human, let alone what's stance they were in. And then we utilized very old techniques from astronomy actually, how to clarify that image. And what you can do is you simply overlay and average multiple frames. And that's easy to do if the camera's stationary and so is the object, um, like like in an astronomy uh, um, you know, scenario. And so over about 30 frames, you were able to see that it revealed the, the, the person that was there. And so, and, and this image averaging is, isn't a new concept area. Like that's been, I don't wanna take credit for that, but it makes the machine vision feasible in a, with a dirty video that's moving around. And so from there, we were able to start researching machine vision techniques. And there's about 15 of them, 16 of them, about five were deemed reliable. And the one that we use called the Hausdorff method uh, was simply the most easiest to implement. And it's a series of measurements is all it is, is you're taking one shape, overlaying it with another shape and looking at all the places where those shapes don't interact perfectly. And of course, the lower the number, the better the match. And we just took a person in various different positions, and then compared them to the reference person that was standing in almost pitch black position black conditions and the algorithm was actually able to match the l lines with a completely different person just happened to be in the same posture we thought that was remarkable and so that's when we thought okay maybe this is feasible and we should do the exact same thing in this file so that's when we recruited somebody with the same height, same weight, same skin tone, and we put them in about nine different positions. One of the positions we didn't test that I wish we would have is this one here. This was, when I presented it, somebody suggested, did you test this position? You know, and I don't know if you can see me, I'm just but this is a very, while we have to your phone directly in front of you and exactly recording. Like you're taking a please like you're taking a picture or video recording, right? Uh, Like we see all the time. That's the one thing I didn't do, but we did do hands in the pocket, checking the phone, like checking your messages, something like that, head down, um, hands up, because the officer was saying, show me your hands. So we had two different hands up positions. Uh, We had various shooting postures. We just had hands down by your side, et cetera, et cetera. Nine different positions. And that algorithm was telling us that the, reference image of that case from those 10 frames we were able to um, frame average from the worn camera was that algorithm was telling us that person was in a shooting posture, which of course was consistent with what the officer was saying and certainly um, consistent with his actions, with his verbals and his actions at that time, just after the verbals. So that to me was remarkable. We're collecting more data um, I sent our magazine article to the city of Sacramento they've made that now made that public as well uh, internally and externally and uh, but they did settle that file it was a complicated file but um, they were happy to get those results and we look forward to publishing that information scientific literature hopefully soon
0: Yeah I mean I think this is all tremendously uh, interesting and and really the the part of Force analysis that people are not understanding. Uh, I see the biggest challenge to be uh, what you what you do in your training, and that is take very complicated things and make it so that we could get uh, officers, investigators, and even jury members to understand. Any advice on how to how to take that, that complex issues and make them as simple? Is it is it that vision area that you were talking about?
1: I think it is. You've got to get as visual as you can. Um, so videos, photos, animations, three D scans, um, overlays. Uh, you know, show people what you're saying by actually doing it in front of them. From, you know, there's all sorts of fantastic software out there. Uh, we're getting better and better and better with Blender, which is a animation software but is really quite good at getting uh, points across with respect to uh, a concept, for example. There's more engineering types of software like SolidWorks, which is very good at, it's a design, it's it's computer-aided design software, but it's very good at doing dimensional analysis. So if you had to recreate a room, that's great. But then there's plugins for SolidWorks called Zygobody. And Zygobody is basically Um, surfaces that are scaled to be similar to humans. And and it ends up to be a bunch of parts assembled into a human. Um, So you can think of it like a machine that's just where the parts are actually parts of a body. And when you assemble uh, that into a machine, it becomes a human body that's also scaled to height and weight. And that's based on data. So even though you're using engineering software, we now have a humanoid in that space that represents the same height, uh, weight and dimensions and proportions of the people of interest during that incident. So things like shooting reconstructions are really great for that because um, if you've got a well-defined wound path, you can now, it's like basically freezing the scene in a moment of time, at the time of discharge, you will know at least the line of sight of that firearm, the wound path, And that wound path is giving you some sort of orientation of at least a limb or whatever body part it went through. And that's an incredibly useful thing when you're putting together an entire 3D reconstruction. So if you can visualize that, instead of saying the azimuth was 12 degrees and the horizontal was 37 from this reference point, that means nothing to people. But if you can visualize the exact same thing and have it be just as accurate, then it starts to make a lot of sense. And on that point, I I wanna communicate that there's one file, I'm so proud of it by the way, there's a gentleman out of Colorado that was choking somebody, had him in a rear naked choke, um, enough to fracture his, his larynx. And to defend himself, he took a firearm and shot this person in the leg. Okay. Um, now, unfortunately the person that was being choked actually died during this incident, even though he was the shooter, but was, what was really, really useful was when we, I went to the scene, I scanned the room. So I had a three-dimensional, uh, positional analysis of the room i knew where the bullet defect was in the floor the, its exact position we went to the lab and determined the angle of that trajectory and by the way if we had used any traditional method to get that trajectory it would have been about 30 degrees off so in other words trajectory rods or ellipse method or any of the other ones out there we tried that and they were way way off so it was and and the reason for that was was because the bullet had traveled through the suspect's leg through carpet through underlay and then finally into floorboard and as you know eric floorboard is kind of laminated and i don't know if you've done any tests or are aware of any tests but i can tell you that when a bullet, hits, I have not. <laughs> okay, I I don't know, but um, I can tell you that when it, I try not to shoot the floor because then I'd be that's <laughs> called that's called an accidental discharge. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's funny. Um, but depending on whether the bullet hits along the grain or against the grain, will determine the shape of that defect. And so we had a very specific defect that was along the grain in the wood, etc., etc., etc. So we recreated that in the lab and got a very accurate trajectory. And that allowed to place the choker, if you will, the person that, the suspect, in a very specific location in the room. And because of the trigger weight of that Snub Nose 38 special, there was only one single orientation that it could have been fired from. Long story short, I can get into details if you want, but I think it's really hard to talk through this stuff without seeing it. There was only one specific orientation, that was, that the decedent was already being choked when the gun went off, okay? And we wouldn't have been able to make that determination if we didn't have such an accurate 3D representation of the scene and those two men within that scene. And that's really the purpose of of the whole thing. And when you can visualize that, it becomes very easy to understand. And were you able to use that in court? Was it admissible? That... It has not gone to court yet. Um, that software is, it is very robust and very validated in other areas of engineering uh, for structures, for structural loads, et cetera. So I have no doubt, and I'm trying to think of an example where we did use that in another file where it got admitted. That's okay, I'm just
0: asking yeah. because that's where we get a lot of pushback from the course. course on reconstruction application that accurate representation and you know with you know I've I've tried cases using 3D animation and and yeah, deadly force shootings, and it's a it's an uphill battle on the evidence admissibility. Well, let me
1: let's talk about that because there's a very, very big difference between a simulation and an animation. An animation is a graphic designer's interpretation True. of what happened. A simulation Is Isaac Newton doing the driving? And so I can, (laughs) yeah, I can, I can defend. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I can defend Isaac Newton. It's hard to defend the average graphic designer, you know, especially when they still live in their mom's basement. But, (laughs) 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 Um, you know, um, but but as we rally, the sorry, I was just going to say, there's a lot of data behind these simulations.
0: Well, one thing I want to do is, as we wrap this up, I want to give you an opportunity to promote some of your training and uh, some of the things uh, about your organization that, that if they've peaked, if you've peaked their interest by listening, they can jump in and uh, and look more into your uh, everyday operation.
1: I hope so. If you go to our website at gtdscientific.com and click on the Science of Violence. There's very good uh, information there with respect to uh, what it is that we do, how we do it, and I would encourage you, if you still want to understand after that, to take the one-hour introduction course because you'll get an introduction to physics, how it's applied to the body, and then how it's used in a case study for an incident uh, for for a shooting reconstruction.
0: I know uh, I- I'm very humbled and happy that you are able to join us today. I think that the listeners definitely are going to be intrigued, and and hopefully they'll reach out to you with any further questions. But hey, I do appreciate the opportunity to jump on the call with you today and get you on the podcast. Likewise, Eric, thanks for the invite. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen. If you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help. Protect those who need your protection. And most importantly, keep yourself and others safe.